Hello everyone and welcome to season 3 of the Seek to Speak podcast where we celebrate the power of words and what better way to celebrate our words by discussing our freedom to speak in a mock trial setting with our wonderful guest Seek to Speak As the judge of this mock trial, yes you heard it, I am the judge but this is not an actual trial proceedings. I will be deciding on the question of whether freedom of speech should be limited in Malaysia. And on the side of the plaintiff, we have the amazing debater extraordinaire, Mai Mosin. Mai is the first Malaysian to be crowned Asia's best speaker and the only person to be in four consecutive Asian finals. She is currently the head coach for Malaysia's debate team and works for a private education firm in Hong Kong. Her client and also plaintiff for this case <laughs> is civil liberties. She will be arguing that freedom of speech should not be limited in order to uphold our, yes, you guessed it, civil liberties. Woo! All right, this is where you say hi, Mai. <laughs> Love it. Hey. <laughs> All right. Hey, oh, my God. Hey, girl. <laughs> And on the other side of the ring, representing the defendant, Law and Order, we have the most esteemed Ahmad Zulvikri, famous litigator and advocate fighting for public order and security. Zul was the captain of his varsity moot team when he represented his institution in several international competitions. Subsequently, he was the moot author for several national competitions, as well as the coach for several national and international level moot competition. He is currently a civil litigator specializing in private and commercial disputes and has appeared in all levels of real court <laughs> including court of appeal and federal court and he will Did be arguing real court <laughs> Yes, he will be arguing that freedom of speech can and should be limited in order to maintain law and order. Say hello, Zul. Hello, here, here. It should be limited. Wow. <laughs> so insightful. Thank you. As I should limit my rice intake as well. Okay. Yes, they are smarter than how they seem right now. <laughs> We hope that this mock trial will educate you and enlighten you on the nuanced issues surrounding freedom of speech in Malaysia and hopefully entertain you along the way. Please note that Mai and Zul are in no way a representation of these ideals and are just my close friends who I've made to debate on a Sunday because I'm evil, but also to highlight and echo popular sentiments shared by many Malaysians across the divide. So while the views here shared may not be personally their own, I have to say that, I just made them pick a side. Uh, the views here are shared by the masses and should be platform highlighted and discussed in a meaningful way. So with that in mind, let's first call this house to order. And I invite the plaintiff's lawyer, Mai Mosin, to open the case. Here, here. <laughs> I didn't know this was supposed to be educational. <laughs> okay, let's start. To anyone and everyone who is watching this, you are free to make comments regarding my speech, free to criticize me, rebut me, or even insult me. The defendant Zul is more than welcome to do so as well. Um, but of course, at your own risk, I have been known to indulge in verbal spars competitively. So I believe that mm -hmm, that is the root for a lot of misunderstandings on what freedom of speech actually is. So to be able to express yourselves freely, it does not mean that I get to speak my mind without any consequences. It does not mean that I would still be offered the same opportunities if I freely abuse my right to free speech. The only thing it means is that I am free from state persecution, that I am free from state censorship due to the expression of my own opinions. So if I were to enter into Zul's house and start insulting his family, he is free to throw me out of his house. If I make offensive remarks to Aisa, she is free to ban me from another seek to speak engagement. It can which, be done. Which might be what I'm going for with this speech. Uh, I'm, I'm very busy and it's a Sunday. But, but none of those things will actually put me under arrest, put me to jail, under legal threat of the loss of livelihood or under public censorship. And that is the free speech that I am proud to defend today. 
So in context, it looks like blasphemy laws in Malaysia, banning books that are deemed to be immoral, like Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, Peter Mill's sex education book on where did I come from, unsurprisingly, a politically honest book like Kian Wong's Rebirth, Reformacy, Resistance, and Hope in New Malaysia. It looks like the Sedition Act in Malaysia, when Malaysia Kini was temporarily shut down for publicizing a criticism on Bumiputra rights. It looks like our MP Lim Guan Ng, who went to jail for criticizing the Attorney General's mishandling of a certain chief minister's rape case. So I could go on for days. I hope mm. you get the context, you have a clear picture of the liberties that we're debating about today. So I'd like to start by paraphrasing the wisdom of some of the greatest minds and the greatest publications that we have on free speech. This is John Milton's Aeropagitica. This is John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. I don't know why all the great philosophers all call it John. I said you might want to name your baby John. That's a good name. Yeah, so good to, name. to paraphrase them, it's not just the right of the person to speak. It is the right of the audience to listen and hear. Every time we silence somebody, we make ourselves a prisoner of our own action because you deny yourself the right to hear something that you need to hear. So the question is, why do we as Malaysians view our own moral convictions to be so weak that it cannot survive a discussion? a debate with new ideas? And can our moral convictions ever be considered moral convictions if they are never tested? Now, Malaysia cracks down on freedom of speech in the name of protection. I assume that's the kind of BS that you hear from our defendants today. And some of you guys may think that you need some level of protection. You're young, you're in your formative years, on your way towards shaping your own beliefs, and maybe your sensibilities need some protection. But the question here is who is going to decide? Who do you want to delegate this task to decide for you what you can and cannot read? Who do you want to relieve you of your responsibility in deciding what is right and wrong and what is good speech and what is harmful speech? And the plain and honest truth is that there isn't one answer that is right for everyone. And yet the laws that the defendant will be defending today will say that there is a person to do so which just happens to be corrupt, power-hungry, majoritarian, ethno-nationalist, religious pandering institutions of power if we're so lucky. So they think they know what's best for us. They are in the majority, so they must be right. We all think we are right. So John Stuart Mills put it very nicely, which is if everyone in society were agreed on the truth, on, on beauty and value of one proposition, all except one person, it would be most important that that one heretic be heard because we would still benefit from his perhaps outrageous views. So as a society, we need to question, why do we know, why do we think we know what we know? How do I know that I know this except that I've always been taught this and I've never heard anything else? So if you think being silenced in favor of entrenching the power of the rulers because of things like law and order and social harmony, why do you think that, Faisal Tahir? Why? So 99 Muslims think that they're right and they impose it on one heretic Christian. But let's say you are the one Muslim amongst 99 Christians and they are about to impose their moral compass on you. Wouldn't you want your liberty to speak and be heard? So don't take refuge in the false security of consensus and the feeling that whatever you think, you're bound to be correct because you are safely in the moral majority in your society. So while my first principle goes above the low-hanging fruits of the corrupt and arbitrary ways in which speech laws is imposed here in our country, let's not forget that in our beloved country, the force that is the main source of hatred, the main source of criticisms, is also the main caller for censorship. Thank you for your time. Ooh, all right. Thank you so much, plaintiff, for your opening statements. Next up, we also have ooh, the defendant lawyer, Zul. What do you have to say? <coughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So my, my friend over there, the extraordinary freedom fighter has contextualized the matter, the, 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 the motion in a sense that her plea to support the, the unmitigated unlimited liberty is that uh, her case is against a certain kind of authority or a certain kind of uh, leader or kind of system or the people behind the motors and the machination of control. That is her narrative in that 
freedom of speech can be morally or personally uh, administered in the sense that uh, using the common sensibilities of the people, they can regulate themselves. Indeed, civil liberties of speech should not be limited or should be limited, but not limited by a certain kind of authority. And she goes on to say that if indeed civil liberties to speech is inhibited, then the moral considerations of many people is not tested because, in, in fact, indeed, with the diversity of the people and the colors and the race, creeds and beliefs in Malaysia, everybody would have their own moral standards, moral standings, and what they seem to believe or what they intrinsically believe as right and wrong. And if civil liberties of speech is inhibited, there will not be any meaningful dialogues or conversation to actually come to a common point of view. That is her entire premise. Now, all of that is, sounds truly ideal, altruistic in fact. I'm so moved that I would, in fact, I would agree with her. But, 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 of course, in, a, in an ideal world, limitless dialogues and free speech would pave the way for better understanding, expansion of the mind, and ideas and lead us all to the twilight of humanity. That's what she said. Through exchange of ideas, there can be an amalgamation of brilliant minds. But let us be real for a moment, my darlings. Nothing is ever ideal. Not even my body weight is ideal. But I deal with it the best way I can, with loose diet and elastic waistbands. So as Malaysia is diverse in its delicacies and food, it is equally diverse in its culture, race, beliefs, experience. Of course, celebrating this diversity, unmitigated, makes for a colorful and flavorful Malaysia. But reality has it, the blue might not agree with the red, and the green has always been suspicious of both blue and the red. This diversity can equally be point of divergence. A divergence left unchecked will lead to division, and division left unencumbered will breed discord. There's rarely any objective way to look at Malaysia. Everything and anything is susceptible to subjectivities. Ironic it is that the one thing that connects us nowadays is, the also, is also the catalyst of divide. I'm talking about the age of the internet, where connectivity rises, but accountability recedes. They used to say that the eyes are the windows to the soul, but no longer. Truly, our deepest and twisted selves and unbound sentiments are reflected through the black mirror. No copyright infringement intended. I'm not saying that people are inherently wicked, but put a screen in between two individuals and all their common courtesies and inhibitions flies out the window. Put a screen in between me, uh, 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 put a screen between people and suddenly mental health, science, social and moral boundaries are nothing. This perhaps seems harmful in the context of loud banters in online forums or in games, but recent history has shown how unchecked freedoms of online speech has led to extremism and gruesome conclusions. What was then a mere meme now makes headlines all over the world. I mean, the person we are in the streets infin are infinitely different than the person we are behind the wheels in the car. Put a windscreen in front of us and suddenly we see it appropriate to curse, to flip a bird and wish death upon somebody's grandmother. Just a tinge, uh, just a tinge of anonymity would already have us flying off the handles. Just imagine the sordid extent people are willing to profess and propagate their unlimited freedom of speech behind the greater anonymity of the internet. You know, speech is power. Very simply put, none should ever underestimate the power of written or spoken words. But as anything with power, it is up for abuse. The fame adage goes, with great power comes great responsibility. But humans, fallible as we are, we are certainly irresponsible. And irresponsible and sensationalist journalism is hot commodity nowadays. The news does not report the truth. The new age audience is more interested in exaggerated tabloids than the truth. Humans are innately encumbered with confirmation bias. Even the, mess, even the best and most virtuous of us are guilty of it. We are drawn only to see what we want to see and magnetized only to substance which corroborate the belief that we want to believe. 
We jealously guard our stance and point of view, although we are inadvertently hurting many others in the process. It only takes a, a few irresponsible clicks to dissuade people from getting vaccinated, and it takes a whole lot more effort to educate the masses. I mean, let's face it, we don't like to be told. We don't even like having to go to school to be educated. Given the unhinged liberty, the people, by and large, would prefer to set their own syllabuses catering to their own agendas and unchecked beliefs. Truly, if not because of law and order in education and freedom of speech, we would have seen a rise of the believers of the flat earth theory. And that is worrying. Steve, lawyer, Zul, what a strong start for both lawyers. Oh, what is the judge to do? How am I to decide? Well, thank God for me, I have evidence on my side. <laughs> <laughs> so now we will go to the evidence stage of the trial. This is where I highlight a freedom of speech related incident in Malaysia. And I would like to hear each of your views on each piece of evidence. So we will first start with Fami Reza because in May this year, graphic artist and social activist Fami Reza was arrested over a satirical song list poking fun at a comment made by our queen because the queen came under fire recently for saying Dunkika or are you jealous to an Instagram user who questioned alleged privileges privilege access to COVID-19 vaccines on her personal Instagram account. Fami has also been charged and questioned for two other posters he designed, including one mocking the health minister in April and is currently being investigated under Malaysia's sedition and communication laws. Fami is best known for his arrest and conviction stemming from his caricature of former Prime Minister Najib Raza as a clown due to the 1MDB scandal. More on this here. They've beaten me up, brutally handled me, put me in police lockup, yeah, and so what else can they do to me? I think the only thing that they can do to shut me up is to lock me up in jail and throw away the key. Uh, but other than that, I don't think I'm going to stop. Fami Reza is probably best remembered for a clown face of former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak that went viral. His political art and activism has landed him in trouble for decades. One of his most recent charges under the Media and Communications Act is for creating this missing poster of the current health minister, asking if anyone has seen him. Since we last spoke to Fami, he's been arrested and is now facing more lawsuits over his art. I think it's just music after this. <laughs> All right, so that is the first piece of evidence. We'll first hear it from the plaintiff's lawyer. Mai, what have you got to say about this? I think one of the clearest ways in which we distinguish a corrupt government from one that is not is through their reaction to political satire. Because unlike regular political dissent, satire like the one that Fami Reza is responsible for is just about entertainment and potentially sparking discussions. It doesn't actually offer concrete criticisms and solutions, so it shouldn't be considered as something that is constructively threatening to political power versus other forms of dissent. Maybe what it does offer is a funny, entertaining symbol, which may gain traction online. So what we see in the persecution of Fami Reza and what this shows here is that we, as a Malaysian society, is that we're actually challenging the idolization of our government leaders. And what past governments have been able to do very well in Malaysia is to kind of hijack the culture of politeness and respect that we have in our local society. And it's one of our greatest assets. And they superimpose it onto our political leaders and they turn it into one of their greatest weapons. So we idolize and we idealize our leaders. And that's how Tun Dr. Mahade was able to stay in power for over two decades, leave only out of his own volition and then re-enter <laughs> and regain power as he pleases because we create this cult of personality surrounding them. And that's why we call Tan Sri Muhyiddin Abah and the sword, which implies that we have to give him the same respect we ought to give to our own fathers. So when we paint Najib Raza as clowns and why it's so threatening to political power is because this form of entertainment is tearing down that culture of respectability. And when you don't respect someone, you see them for who they truly are, corrupt leaders. And that's why the government is persecuting Fami Reza over a couple of cartoons. 
because he's challenging the state's brainwashing of Malaysian culture to their own advantage. It's hurting no one's sensibility in society other than the sensibility of corrupt politicians. And that's why it's kind of obvious here that speech laws are being used as a tool of persecution, not as a tool of law and order. All right, Zul, defendant, law and order, what's your right. So I've been here, what I've heard so far is a lot of buzzwords on corrupt government and idealization and the, the creation of cult of personalities idolizing leaders. But all of this is more of an ad hominem narrative against persons. Is it against systems? Wonder that. Here we go. The darling of all proponents of unlimited civil liberty, the famous and infamous Fahmi Reza, Fahamilah Reza, the <laughs> artist, activist, and savant contrarian. Of course, silencing dissent against the 1MDB scandal, or even against the Queen, is almost absolutely indefensible. How can it be defended? It, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It sheds light to the biggest governmental corruption scandal the world has ever set their eyes on. The people has rights to dissent and to criticize against corruption and misappropriation of the country's money. I, I agree with that. But ponder this. Does the persecution and prosecution of Amireza make a good case against law and order? I believe absolutely not. The rally for freedoms of speech flying Fahmi Reza's banner and flag is an unfortunate case of misplaced animosity. Let's have a moment of clarity and think. Is the prosecution of Fahmi Reza a problem with the law and order or a problem with the people democratically elected to administer that system of law and order? Well, I can't say the same lah for PM8 and PM9, <laughs> but that's another conversation for another time. Or simply ponder this. If you hired a grab ride to KL and ended up in Kuala Lipis, do you blame the car or the grab driver? <laughs> you know, I, I'll give you I another example. The <laughs> give me, I'll give you another example. If a wife is hungry and her husband didn't already know that she's craving for pasta, whose fault is it that the husband instead bought nasi bujang? Of course the husband, because my wife listens to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we could bring in cheerleaders. <laughs> Matrimony aside, the persecution and prosecution of Amireza was a misfortune brought upon another civil liberty irresponsibly exercised. It is the people who democratically elected the government then. So, do we blame the civil rights for democratic election or the voters who vote these people into power? This has long been the problem with the court of public opinion. They're quick to jump on the bandwagon and assign blame to whoever, whomever, who seems to fit the bill. But civil rights cannot just simply swing on the fulcrum of something vague and presumptuous. But civil rights, unfortunately, often do. But who needs accuracy and exactitude nowadays anyway, right? My friend there doesn't. Even I don't. All I know Ooh. is that I'm full... All I know is that I'm fluffing up during the lockdown period and it's all the Dalgona coffee's fault. Eh? <laughs> all right. We'll bring it down Dalgona coffee with you. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have our second piece of evidence um, is on the 8th of August, 2019, Indian Islamic televangelist and preacher Zakir Nai was asked about his response to right-wing Malaysian groups wanting him to be extradited out of Malaysia. He replied... Malaysia became fully Muslim. Then you had the Chinese coming. You had the Indians coming, the British coming. They are our new guests. You know, somebody called me a guest. So I say before me that the Chinese are the guests. They aren't born here. So if you want the new guests to go, first ask the old guests to go back. This comment sparked outrage across Malaysian society, being perceived as inciting racial and religious hatred and disrupting the peace and harmony between communities. By 20 August, the police had imposed a nationwide speaking ban on Zakir Nai after several states started imposing one themselves. Uh, more on this here. Majority of the population are Muslims. Which thought? Controversial preacher Dr. Zakir Naik has been banned by the police from delivering public talks in Malaysia. PDRM Head of Corporate Communication, Datu Asmawati Ahmad, when contacted by news portal Malay Mail, confirmed that the order to ban Dr. Zakir was in the interest of national security. 
On Monday, Dr Zakir was questioned for more than 10 hours by the police in Bukit Aman under Section 504 of the Penal Code for intentional insult with intent to provoke a breach of the peace. He was previously questioned for more than three hours last Friday. Dr Zakir is being investigated over his racially charged comments made during a lecture in Kota Baru, Kelantan, which triggered 115 public complaints. All right, now let's start this time with public order. Uh, do you think this is a win for you? Of course, of course. It's in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> that right. tiny, minuscule bag that no one can see, yeah, you can take it home. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Okay, so the Zake Naik conundrum presents itself with problems with unlimited free speech from two distinct facets, two distinct points. We first set aside the underlying background of Zake Naik's recent fallout with Malaysia's national security concern. And even, even when we set that aside, we should first understand two realities to make Unlimited, uh, to, to understand realities that make unlimited free speech a threat to national security. One, being the pedestal bias, that's what I call it, and two, the self-preservation bias. Now, firstly, the pedestal bias is the people's biasness to abdicate themselves to a certain narrative or a person who they hail to be their savior or hero. You know, one should never underestimate a man who is on a mission or a woman on a mission. Well, inclusive there. <laughs> because, yes, people, once they are smitten by a certain sort of ideology or a person affirming that ideology, they put that person on a pedestal. And anything and everything stemming from that person is the gospel of truth. He can do no wrong. And he can only preach what is the absolute and solemn truth. And this is exactly how certain Muslim sect of the world, not just Malaysia, Hells Zakine. He is the master preacher who can convert the world into the golden age of Islam. Mm. On the flip side, though, now we, we, we understand the pedestal bias. Now, there's also the concept of the self-preservation bias, which is instead a person's own, Zakinaik's own biasness to survive or to preserve himself. It is instinctive, in fact, primal for people to do things or conduct themselves in a manner that can preserve their safety and their self. Our flight or flight instinct oftentimes is a snap reaction which is indiscriminate to what is right or wrong. Push a man down the well and instinctively he will pull on the hands or legs of anyone nearby, even if doing so will put the other person in harm's way. And Zaki Naik's conundrum is a prime exhibit of both these pedestals, of both these my apologies, this biasness in play. Now enter the reason why Zakir Naik's freedom of speech was denied in Malaysia. Zakir Naik came to Malaysia fleeing the persecution and prosecution he faced in India. The Indian government called for his extradition back to India. The Malaysian divide is this. His sympathizers called for his protection. His naysayers called for his extradition. Now, I'm not going to delve too much into the politics or religiosity of Zakir Naik. The need for law and order is sufficiently obvious just from the two biases or biases at play here. Firstly, Zakir Naik's self-preservation bias was quick to cling onto Malaysia's racial sentiments to prove his point on how his naysayers have no rights to call for his exodus from Malaysia. He said that, my Leng Chai and my Leng Lui were merely guests in Malaysia and have no right to remove him from the country. He also claimed that my Bayas and my Achis holds more loyalty to the Prime Minister of India than they do to the Malaysian PM then. Now enter the pedestal bias. As I have said, people really take Zakir Naik's word as gospel with esteem and highest of regards. Zakir Naik can prey on racial sensitivities and the masses will gladly play along and agree to his racist remarks without a sand grain of doubt. Zakir Naik left unchecked can stoke the amber and his followers will follow through to set the nation, and, uh, the, the, set the nation ablaze and national security in total disarray. So while it, while it, what will it be, my dear Mai? Should Zakir Naik or Zakir Turun? 
All right. Thank you, part-time psychologist, full-time philosopher. <laughs> so, now, let's hear it from the darling Mai. <laughs> Love it. Evelyn Beatrice Hall really says it best, which is, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. So unlike oh. our defendant here today who conceded that speech laws are heavily abused as a tool of persecution in the case of Fami Reza, and weaseled himself out of the political realities of today and is living in some utopian non-corrupt government that doesn't exist, oh, I will me, actually, I will actually defend Dr. Zakir Naid's right to speak. Now, make no mistake about it, I agree that he is a despicable human being. But as Zulfikri explains here today, with pedestal biases and cults of personalities, we can see how many supporters he has and how many people who view his silencing as a form of persecution of their entire moral compasses. And that is one of the most dangerous narratives that we as a society can hand to his supporters and his cult of personality. That from a person who is vile, and a person who is a perpetrator of atrocious beliefs, that he is now somehow a victim who is robbed of his civil liberties and his ability to profess his own morals. So these supporters, they do not magically disappear once we deplatform these personalities, as our defendant mistakenly believes. They in fact become even greatly mobilized by the anger of being silenced that they find other more insidious platforms to spread their views. We're talking about the deep recesses of the internet, which is impossible to regulate. And many, many options of fully encrypted platforms anonymity ensuring platforms like your 4chans and 8chans and parlors and the like <laughs> and where they all thrive in their own echo chambers so silencing them doesn't take away their views they find other worse ways to manifest those specific viewpoints so they validate and revalidate each other's views in this dangerous bubble where there aren't any counter narratives and what we've done on that other side is to add fuel to the fire, give them anger at the forefront of this discussion. And this is where radicalism is bred, which is the whole uh, thing that the side of defendant wanted to prevent from to begin with. So it may sound fantastical that we breed radicalism in this corner of the internet where nobody can see, but this is the reality. We look at the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. We look at church killings in Charleston, Pittsburgh synagogue murders, whatever religion that is targeted and is a victim of radicalism. All of those shooters share one common thread, which is that their radicalism was bred in 4chan, in the deep, lowest depths of online echo chambers. And that's what silencing people actually does. You don't get rid of that radicalism. You push them into places where we can no longer control them. So what is preferable here? We have a majority who hates Dr. Zakir Naim. We have a majority who agrees that what he's saying is completely atrocious. So engage with him at these events. Don't silence him. He takes questions. Question him. Quote his video on Facebook and take him down. Reply to a comment of his supporter and engage them in discourse. We want to piggyback off of these repulsive comments with education and insight. With, of course, the odds of changing Zakir Knight's ideologies are very low, but the point is you're breaking that echo chamber. You're inserting counter-narratives. And that tiered discussion gives every new audience a holistic overview of what's happening. And we reduce the chances of his views being supported. That's who we convince, and that's what free discourse is for. Woo! Thank you so much to Zaki Naik's biggest hater and advocate. <laughs> no, At I think both of us agree that we hate Zaki Naik. <laughs> no, that's not a contention in this in this bubble. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, Seek to speak doesn't condone, doesn't support Zaki Naik. Just putting that out there. All right. So the last piece of evidence that we have is, of course the new anti-fake news act. So this year, the government enacted the Emergency Essential Powers Number no. 2 Ordinance 2021 using the powers conferred by the Emergency Proclamation which was declared earlier this year. The ordinance, now known as the Revised Anti-Fake News Law, establishes a number of criminal offences relating to fake news about the COVID-19 pandemic and the Emergency Proclamation. The new offences included the creation, publication or dissemination of so-called fake news and the failure to take down publications containing content deemed as fake news. While this ordinance has since been purportedly revoked due to the government calling the end of the emergency, it is also important to discuss whether it was justified or effective in the first place. All right, so more on this here. 
The emergency ordinance to act against fake news is a short-term remedy to deal with misinformation concerning COVID-19 and the emergency proclamation and not a tool to silence the people. Communications and Multimedia Minister Datuk Saifuddin Abdullah said the law was only meant to handle fake news so it does not cause panic and concern among the public. The ordinance is very specific. It's only about COVID-19 and the emergency. As mentioned by Datuk Takyudin just now, uh, once it, we are now under emergency, whatever ordinance that we pass, uh, we are not interested whether this is SOSMA, whether this is sedition. Our only interest is to control the fake news, the distribution of fake news on specific two areas that is COVID-19 and emergency. All right, because what episode is complete without a discussion on the pandemic, right? So to begin with, shall I go to you, Mai? Yes, we have to counter fake news with facts, not acts. That is the real solution um, that we have to focus on when there's misinformation. So there's a couple of things that we have to note here when it comes to the Anti-Fake News Act. The first is that the law was made without parliamentary approval because it came at a time where the parliament was suspended due to the state of emergency. So there wasn't actually democratic oversight to ensuring that this law was going to be fair to begin with. So as a result, if we dived a little bit deeper into what the fake news acts actually entails. We have absolutely ridiculous forms of liability. We are looking at 500,000 ringgit fines and six years in jail for your parents forwarding a chain message in WhatsApp. It doesn't distinguish between <laughs> the liability of the offender and the liability of the platform that it is being hosted on. It gives the police unfettered access to your personal data. So really any excuse to delve into all of your private conversations, especially if you are a political actor. It cannot be challenged in court if the state slaps you with a fake news order, even if it's politically contrived. These orders also cannot be publicly disclosed. So we look at the wording of the law and we can discover without democratic oversight, there's no way that this law in and of itself is meant to actually deliver its intended purpose. The second thing we're looking at is that the law punishing quote-unquote fake news actually strongly raises the risk of suppressing really meaningful public discussion on the legitimacy of the law or the political crises that was brought on by the suspension of the parliament. So the media is great in marketing this law as like, oh, it's only relating to fake news for COVID-19. And then you look at the wording of the law, they define fake news to be those that are relating to both COVID-19 as well as the declaration of the emergency. So at the heart of it, Malaysia as a state, we are not equipped to pass laws regulating speeches because even in cases where there is merit, such as controlling misinformation, it is almost always still used as a tool of persecution. We cannot defend these kind of ordinances. Mm, yes, political analyst. My thank you for that. I will accept uh, appointments uh, and requests <laughs> for interview. She's open for consultation with a big fee. <laughs> Next, we have, yes, lawyers, Zulfikri, what's your response? Okay, so my learned friend over there is saying that the remedy to misinformation is facts, not acts. Now, of course, the proponents of the freedom of speech would argue that if speech is maintained unmitigated and free, then meaningful conversation of facts can take place where sooner or later that the entire narrative and facts can be demystified and the real truth can rise from the ashes. But my, do you know what could not rise from the ashes while people bounce around like wild you? ideas around? <laughs> bodies. Dead bodies of COVID-19 fatalities who were caught in the crossfire of anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theories, religious nutjobs, yapping away gross information, misinformation like it's the commandments. Come on, we barely can maintain any degree of meaningful conversation in our nation's own parliament. You want meaningful conversation within the people. You know, the global unrest today is caused uh, by the pandemic. It's in fact a litmus test of how far can speech can truly be free. And this test, my dear, we have utterly failed. In a time where certainty is scarce and noise is aplenty, misinformation spreads like wildfire. Everybody wants to speak and anybody has an opinion. 
there's enough infighting within the Muslim community on whether or not the vaccine is halal or not. Because some jolly old Ustad is practicing his freedom of speech, which is, he believes, higher and mightier than the ulama and the World Health Organization. You know, our goal today is to reach herd immunity, not being herd immunity. Nobody wants to hear your grossly uneducated, ill-advised, non-peer-reviewed, Google search results, conspiracy theory about how the ulama, the doctors, the experts, the world leaders are all in cahoots with big pharma either to make money out of fake of this fake virus or to shove 5G technology into my bloodstream so that I can Netflix and stream Sherlock with the Queen of England right in the comfort of my own mind palace. Hmm? But Benedict Cabbage Patch aside, freedom fighters like my friend there would even argue why do we have to draw any line in the first place? Well, the reason law and order has to draw the line is simply because the unfortunate reality that a lie or falsity told enough times will eventually, it, sorry, eventually become the truth. Winston Churchill said that history is written by the victors. Nay, 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 not anymore. History is now written by the one with the highest number of retweets and likes. Let us be real, ladies and gents. We have now a meme cryptocurrency called Dogecoin, which is gaining value and legitimacy just because Elon Musk vouched for it. And with one tweet retweeted a million times over, suddenly this joke of a meme currency can become legal tender. The foundation of truth is no longer facts, data, or analysis, my dear. People like to cling on to sensational and the scandalous. Truth and compliance is dull and boring, right? But a contrarian attitude is fiery, passionate, individualistic, and distinctive. People love to be outstanding. People love to be at the limelight and shade others who disagrees with them. And it is this contrarian attitude and voice that had dissuaded millions from pursuing vaccination. It is this unchecked contrarian voice that led people to believe that COVID-19 is just a global hoax to keep Muslims out of the mosque, the Christians out of the church, the Hindus out of the temple, and well, you get my point. Thank you so much, uh, conspiracy theory and cryptocurrency non-believer. We do not in any way uh, encourage or discourage you to buy cryptocurrency, Bitcoin or Dogecoin. But thank you so much. And that ends the evidence round. Woohoo! And you have just heard my bell, which means it is time for the really quick principle lightning round. Uh, this is where we will test each lawyer's ability to principally defend their stance in three different quick scenarios, 30 seconds each. So I will give you a scenario and ring the bell and say your name and you have 30 seconds to provide your quick views on the issue. And I will also be displaying a quick timer on the screen, which I will share screen now so that you know how much time you have left. Shall we go my Zol, Zol, my, or is it just my first Zol and my Zol? What do you, what do you guys think? Uh, either is fine with me. All right, so we'll go my Zol, my Zol. Yeah, right? I'll respect her freedom of speech. <laughs> Thank you for crossing the aisle. Oh. Love it. We love an All inconsistent right. opponent. <laughs> okay, so first up, we have nudity on screens because. Porn is banned in Malaysia. I'm sure all of you know our listeners too. So what are your thoughts on that? Let's start with Mai. Yes, we should allow porn and nudity on screen, but it doesn't mean that that industry cannot be regulated, especially public platforms. We can very easily implement things like age restrictions, ensuring that some of these contents can be ethical in some way, but it should be allowed on at least private platforms and those who are willing to pay good money to consume these kind of content. It should be allowed. So, all right, simply put, pornography has to be banned because you guys are not ready for what I have in store underneath the sheets. But just, just for jests aside, pornography is more harmful than the innocence that and the mainstream media is trying to portray. And in fact, my learned friend there talks about regulation and was against it, but now wants to regulate the pornography industry. What a joke. 
All right, thank you. Now we have scenario two, cyberbullying, because Malaysia is among the world's top countries where parents have reported their children experiencing cyberbullying. My thoughts. Cyberbullying should not be allowed. I think there's a clear distinction between free expression of thoughts and a categorical crime, where it crosses the aisles that this is a targeted assault towards individuals to the point of causing it tangible harm. So you don't get the right to do that. You get to express your own opinion, but you don't get to tangibly cause hurt to individuals. Carte blanche. Zoe. Now, the problem with that narrative on the threshold of what people were to consider as hurtful or not, the problem with that narrative is that pe different people have different thresholds. As people have different moral or societal moral compasses, they have different thresholds as well. So what is considered as bullying to somebody else might not be bullying to another. So indeed, bullying or whatever form should not be allowed on the cyberspace. All right, thank you. We have, uh, we have some switching insights on both sides. <laughs> uh, all right, lastly, we have the banning of religious books and texts. Malaysia has banned several religiously controversial books on Islam, as well as the use of the word Allah for non-Muslims. So thoughts on that, Mai? Absolutely no ban, because we need freedom of thought across different religious ideologies, particularly because religious institutions is the institution that we use to brainwash, hijack the vulnerable, and impose moral compasses onto individuals that they do not consent into. So this is specifically an area where we need a lot of scrutiny and criticisms towards those institutions. Okay, what say you, Zo? Absolutely ban the books. You know, because all these uh, allegations against the religious institution being all powerful and all manipulative is only a self-serving narrative that is not true, you know, and people have to respect certain kind of cultural and historical experience of the nation, which is largely Muslim. So does that not count for something? All right, time's up. Thank you, speakers, lawyers, debaters, mutas, people, friends. Love it, love <laughs> it. We are all of those things. We are all humans. All right, thank you so much for that amazing uh, lightning round. I think it was very entertaining and quick, and I don't think I would have been able to do it. So thank you for doing it for me. All right, so that ends the lightning round. And next round, we have the much anticipated rebuttal or trash talk psychological warfare round. So <laughs> this is the summary round where each lawyer tells why the other one doesn't make any sense and why their arguments are more superior. Let's start with the plaintiff whip. My Mosin, here, here. Thank you yeah, very yeah. much. Let's examine a couple of the very wonderful smoke screens that we heard coming from the defendant. A lot of food for thought, a lot of questions, but with no real answers, really. So let's talk with the, with the first one. Let's start with the first one. The defendant says that it's not the fault of the law. That's actually the fault of the people in power who are enforcing that law and therefore working his way around the contextual reality of Malaysia is that we don't have responsible people in power. But let's assume we live in a global context. The problem is there are inherent machinations of government that render it in a way where we don't really have a fully non-corrupt government. We look at three things. Firstly, is that the nature of the government is that everyone is seeking to preserve their power. So no matter who is in power in whatever context, they will have necessary political incentives to abuse those laws that ensure that their dissidents are being silenced. That number two, there isn't ever a singular definition of good speech and bad speech. Even in scenarios where I can assume that the government is very benevolent, these definitions are going to be influenced by majoritarian norms. So if you are in an Islamic society or a Catholic society, you will find the views of the religious minorities to be morally offensive to your sensibilities and therefore inhibiting any possibility of being progressive within those social norms. And then thirdly, we heard 
the audacity of the side of defendant to blame the people for not voting the correct government in power when we all came out and did and had to experience a backdoor government that basically seated the very government that we unseated. We look at political realities of toxic politics, of spreading political misinformation, of using welfare handouts to secure votes in rural areas, of gerrymandering. If democracy is the hill that the side of defendant is going to die on, I'm going to guarantee you that Democrat structures are so inherently flawed that we won't ever get a government that's going to be fully responsible with the way in which they regulate our speech. Due to this reality, due to this impossibility, we have to oppose regulations on speech because we can never have a proper justified actor to regulate morality. And that's the thing that they have to contend with in this debate, not just in this utopian society where all governments are responsible and all of their moral adjudications are always going to be justified in this debate. The second thing I want to look at, they said that the purpose of the law, they want to focus on the merits of the law, such as correcting misinformation. Oh, such nice narratives. And look at the body bags, the count in this pandemic. Funny, it doesn't take into consideration when the state is responsible for this misinformation, and I don't see them being prosecuted by any law. The state that organizes by elections that basically plunge our country into a new wave of COVID-19 that we haven't ever been able to be that we haven't ever been able to deal with necessarily and them not taking any political accountability for those atrocities. So if you really want to talk about taking down misinformation, they need to engage with the reality that silencing anti-vaxxers is not actually getting rid of them. Anti-vaxxers go underground. This was the whole point that I made that has to be engaged with, which is the realities of the radicals is they don't disappear. They find other hidden, pernicious ways to enter into discourses where it is impossible to regulate. Yes, they are responsible for us not achieving herd immunity. They will still be there. They will still be responsible. No one is engaging with them. No one is moderating them. If you choose to take the path of silence and persecution, that's what we need to deal with. So yes, they are fiery radicals, etc. You are tossing fuel into that fire and you have to deal with that. Last thing you want to look at is division and radicalism. So again, division here is not being erased through silencing mechanisms. You're taking away people's voices. They will find other ways to manifest their own views. In the worst case scenario, we may offend the feelings of individuals. But we do have laws to ensure that those offended feelings don't transcend towards actually discriminating other individuals. In fact, when you don't control the breeding ground of radicalism within these online echo chambers, that's when it's incredibly difficult for you to stop them from hurting other individuals. So we need to trust on improving our social apparatuses. We need to improve education, improve laws, human rights, political consciousness, social discourse in a way where people will behave responsibly when confronted with all of these offensive ideas. So we need to empower the majority to navigate this discourse that we do meet racist people, we don't silence them, we educate them. And this is the exclusive benefit that they can never get on that side of the house. Racist people will continue to be racist, hold on to their views, and now they're angry and they're retreating into their radical echo chambers. On our side, what we have is moderation. What we have is education and engagement. What we have is a multiplier effect when we take down that video of Dr. Zakir Naik and we tell his supporters why he's wrong. We get to educate the audience as to why these views should not continue to be bred. We didn't hear any actual reason as to why the average reasonable person is going to listen to Dr. Zakir Naik and be like, love it, we love domestic violence. <laughs> Especially when we have laws in Malaysia that criminalizes domestic violence. So we have to give society the benefit of the doubt. If we believe in education and law and order as they believe it so, then strengthen these education and laws to ensure that the radicalist sentiments that are being bred by these people are effectively engaged with and not silenced in a way where they can manifest their views in worse behaviors. And that's why free speech is a net benefit to our society and not a net harm. Woo! All right. Thank you so much, Plaintiff Whip. All right, so next up responding is the defendant Web Azul. What do you have to say? All right, so first of all, my learned friend have taken a lot of liberties to criticize so much on how the government can be irresponsible. The people who is in control of the government will most likely or more often than not will abuse and make it a tool of tyranny and draconian rule. But let us shift the lens a bit 
and not just simply look at the people within the government. The thing is, irresponsibility is not just a single dimensional thing. It's a particular element that could happen anywhere, especially irresponsibility or irresponsible uh, conduct can even happen within the people itself. The people who is trying to propagate and profess this freedom of speech, are they truly responsible? I don't believe so. Because, in fact, why is it that there is an emergency to begin with? You know, Because we want to see the emergence of all these people having these voices sprouting all this nonsensical conspiracy theory against vaccination and against the COVID-19 virus. And that's why we have the emergency. Because at the end of the day, whether or not the government is responsible or otherwise, we look first at the people. Because at the end of the people, at the end of the day, the people make the choices. The people choose what to share. The people choose what to retweet. The people choose what to believe. The government doesn't tell them. The government just gives them a certain kind of rule and form and some kind of procedure telling the tr what is true and what is falsity. And yeah, we, should, we should give these people, the, the, even the anti-vaxxers, a platform for them to speak loudly and widely in public just to ensure that they don't go into a grassroots movement underground in the deepest recesses of the dark net using Reddit or 4chan. I understand that, you know? But at, at the same time, the problem with that kind of argument is that people are going to believe whatever they want to believe, you know? And that particular kind of platform can backfire to give these people a certain kind of gloss of legitimacy, you know? Because a certain news being repeated in the most legitimate news reporting channel can gain a certain grain of legitimacy. And this seed of legitimacy can sprout into a tree of strong misinformation. So why give them this room? Why give them the, the particular space to you know, sprout all this misinformation? You know, my learned friend over there is stellar. My, you are stellar. Interstellar, in fact, out of this world. I mean, out of touch with the realities of this world. <gasps> unlimited, unlimited and unmitigated freedom, please. Nothing is ever truly free, my. No one is truly ever born free. I clearly wasn't. It costed a lot for my parents to bring this boy <laughs> into this world. Every liberty comes at the cost of something. There's a cost, there's an expense. The freedom of speech comes at the cost of somebody being silenced from the counterparty. Somebody has to listen. There's speech and there's silence. If there cannot be speech at the same time, you know, because the wisdom of Gandhi goes to say, an eye for an eye makes the world blind. I intend to expand on this wisdom a bit for the sake of my freedom fighter over there. A speech for a speech makes the world go deaf. Because when any and every speech is permitted, no one would be willing to sit down and listen. Human beings yearn and, craved, and crave to be listened to. But most of us do not have the empathy, patience, and commitment to truly listen. Many of us can spill the tea, says, but not many of us ever cared how the tea ever felt like. What a pity. <laughs> Code changer, pun master, Zul. All right. Thank you so, so much for all of that uh, trash talk as well as rebuttal. To end the mock trial, I now invite both plaintiff as well as defendant to make their closing statements to support their case. Let's start with my. What is the last thing you have to say to convince all of our listeners that you are right? Well, I would not like to end this trial by recommending that you break the law by reading banned books, but I would be hard-pressed to say anything other than every single book I've read that the government told me I shouldn't have read, I learned far more in it than I have studying other related materials that are freely accessible to me. If you cannot already tell by my name and my appearance, I am a Muslim. I have read the infamously blasphemous books by Hitchens, God is Not Great, and as predicted, I was infuriated about 98% of the time while reading it, <laughs> but I understood more things about the world. I've lifted a veil of ignorance that there isn't a public institution in this world that is without faults, even if I believe God may be perfect. 
the people who are administering religion in his name are humans who are definitely not perfect. And if I chose to never challenge ideas that have been taught to me from birth, I have no right to claim my own moral convictions because those are not my morals. Uh, one quote from him in this book that I found to be profound is that the most educated person in the world now has to admit that he or she knows less and less, but at least knows less and less about more and more. How ignorant can we be to think that we know all there is to know and that all that we know is definitely correct? To understand, we need to listen to dissent. We need to listen to what defendant believes to be the radicals, the anti-truthers, the immorals, because consider for a moment that in their outrageous claims, that in the courage that it takes to give such a dissenting opinion, that there could be a grain of truth that is worth addressing, and that even if there isn't, that their views are worthy of engagement, of moderation, because these are real people whom you still have to live with. You silence their thoughts and they will find other, more dangerous avenues of expression, and that is no way to live. We heard a lot of food for thought from my learned friend here. So here's a couple for you to ponder at the end of this trial. Is it possible to have a singular actor who can make decisions on universal moral truths on behalf of every person in society? Is it possible to have a state who will never have political incentives to retain power when it comes to the enforcement of speech laws? If they are, wouldn't these states be for the abolishment of speech laws? If they are, wouldn't they agree that your civil liberties to speak ought to be protected? Is it possible to erase the views of people via silencing mechanisms? I did not say give anti-vaxxers a platform like we heard from the speaker before me. I said engage and moderate them, whereas the defendant wants to push them into unregulated bubbles. Moderate means regulate as well, right? Defendants want to push them into unregulated bubbles where the victims will remain victims and the views that he wanted to prevent grows in more insidious ways. We haven't heard a response yet on how we're going to deal with these specific problems within society. So those are the food for thoughts. Consider that. We don't have to agree with what's being said. We can agree that Dr. Zak we can agree that Dr. Zakir Nae is absolutely oh. despicable. We can agree that anti-vaxxers are terrible individuals who are causing harm to society. But censorship is not the solution. Free speech is a potential solution. So let's engage and moderate society. I'm very proud to defend civil liberties today. Thank you. I was going to say, order the court. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so full from all that food for thought. My next. I love giving books. people food. Let's fatten them up with food. Yeah, that's all we do during the pandemic, right? Uh, Zul, do you have anything else to feed us? <laughs> wow. Is that, is that appropriate for content to feed you guys? <laughs> I'm just joking. See, that's why I need to be censored. <laughs> he agrees again. <laughs> yeah, see? You see, all right. So this, for this entire debate, for this entire mock trial, it seems as though that both of us are very combative and contrastive. You know, I, I, why not I just uh, invite the floor or the quorum to have a bit of paradigm shift? You know, because I truly believe what we need as a society is a paradigm shift. We as a society as my learned friend has, tend to see liberties and inhibitions in separate silos, in that liberties and inhibitions are mutually exclusive, and that any control placed upon liberties is automatically a form of usurpation or a form of oppression. We need to do and be better than this, my children, you know? Lest we can only continue to be combative and ever contrastive with our own neighbors. <laughs> What was popularized in the West is that the belief that the human self is purest and true when it, it is unhinged and unchanged, most often with some form of substance abuse, of course. No offense to Snoop Doggy Dog, but I digress. I believe that what truly defines us is our liberties to self-expression as well as the inhibitions, doubts, and the prudence. We need to embrace and understand that liberties and inhibitions coexist to bring forth balance. Our unbridled thoughts and freedom is only half of what we truly are. The other half is the reservations and control we administer to maintain a reasonable and sound constitution. 
you know, I would liken it to the game of football. What makes it universally glorious is its form, rule, and order. The game's rule and inhibitions do not, inhi do not inhibit creativity of play. In fact, many astounding strategies, styles, and creative play blossom from the set of rules and inhibitions of the game. It is the game's law and order that becomes the pillar of the sport's beauty. Without this pillar, then the game crumbles into nothingness. Anything and everything is permitted. Nothing is uniform and thus, there is no metric to gauge a win from a loss or a foul from a flop. There will only be 10 players, players huddled up past each team's defensive line as there are no offsides. There are no throw-ins because there is no field of play. There will be no fit on the ground because all the players will be flying from offensive sliding tackles galore. This equally applies to the freedom of speech. The examples discussed earlier clearly shows that too much of something is always a bad, bad idea. The rule and limitations imposed unto free speech is not automatically an affront to freedom of speech. Albeit, and I will admit that the system is far from perfect, it's far from perfect, mind, as everything is rarely perfect. But the world's history on governance and revolution has consistently thought as one thing, and that is, at the end of the day, the people will always look back to law and order and a distinct governance to maintain peace and stability. Why do you ask? I think it's simply the fact that history always realized and have always known that an, that an effective leadership and governance is not one that permits all and unlimited speech, but it is one that regulates a reasonably fair playing field to be heard. And this can only be achieved by law and order. All right, we were fed for thought by Mai, and then we did a lot of exercise with Zool, you know, some kicks, some football stuff, jargon, jargon that I don't know. <laughs> All right, thank you, everyone. That was super intense. And after listening to both sides of the house, as well as the evidence presented before the court, I will decide with... Sorry, I will side with the people. And by people, oh, I mean you listeners listening. Oh, it's up to you. Hey, democracy, it's up to you to tell me who you agreed with and why. We would love to hear from you because this is the value of freedom, using it to forward discussion and discourse. Plus, I'm not a real judge. This is not a real court because the real court is the court of public opinion. No, it's not. <laughs> So I just want to say a really, really, honestly, super, super big thank you to my amazing guests and best friends, <laughs> Mai and Zul. You guys were honestly exceed expectations. Seriously, so damn good. I am so proud of the both of you and slightly, very much so intimidated. <laughs> the next well, episode, Aisa well. versus Mai and Zul. <laughs> No, I will definitely be crushed. But seriously, thank you so much for really amazing and educational views and truly for being brave to really take on each side. I know there were a lot of points in time where maybe you did not fully agree with the things that I asked you to do on this episode, but you went with it anyway. And I'm so happy and our listeners will be so happy to hear from you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here. Thank you for having us.